Well, considering the year that most of us have had, especially if you think about last Easter, it's pretty easy to feel empty, to feel disappointed, to feel discouraged, to feel like that particular stone that's in your way is blocking you from life ahead. You know, the resurrection story in all four Gospels, they all center on, they all focus on the empty tomb. Every single one of the gospel narratives takes a look at the events of the empty tomb as, as part of the resurrection story. Now, the amazing thing is that there is no disagreement whatsoever that on the third day the tomb was empty. Do you know that? There is no disagreement whatsoever that on the third day the tomb was empty, even among those who did not believe in Jesus, who thought he was a fraud, who thought he was an imposter. They acknowledged that on the third day, the tomb was empty. But as to why the tomb was empty on the third day, well, now we're in the area of disagreement. Uh, it's a quintessential he said, she said story. Where's my quintessence? Uh, actually, if you think about it, it's actually a he said, he said, she said they said story, but, but you get the point, right? So there are only two explanations for the empty tomb. There's only two. The first explanation is that the disciples came by night and stole the body of Jesus. That's one explanation. And, and the only other possible explanation is that he is risen, just as he said. And so today from the Gospel of Matthew, the text that you've already heard read, let's, let's examine this testimony, this evidence, because uh, both sides have witnesses and both sides have evidence as to support their position. So the first explanation is that the disciples came by night and they stole the body of Jesus. This is the testimony given to us by the guards who were stationed at the tomb of Jesus. But the first question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is their testimony reliable? Are they credible witnesses? Now, in the resurrection narrative, the sudden appearance of an angel from heaven, it does two things. It sends shockwaves through the earth, and it sends shivers down the spines of the guards. Shiver me timbers. This is exactly what happens. This angel comes down and this, this seismic event occurs and it shakes the earth and it shakes the guard. If you look in Matthew chapter 28 and you look at verse 4, after this happened, look at what it says about the guards. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, if you're not familiar with the resurrection story, you might be wondering, why are there guards at the tomb in the first place? Now, this is a really interesting part of the story, and it's a part of the story that only Matthew gives us. No other gospel gives us this detail. Now, it's really interesting if you remember that Matthew is a tax collector. He's a former tax collector which means he worked for the Roman government, and uh, he has some details and apparently some connections still from the old job. 
that he understands what's happening, knows what's going on in this moment. So Matthew is, is almost has an inside track to what's occurring. Now, the reason that the guards are at the tomb is interesting. If you look back in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 27, there's this, this moment right after the death of Jesus, and the religious leaders, the people who had Jesus crucified, they're worried. They're worried. They go to Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea, and they tell him, and you can read this, and starting in verse 63, that, that afterwards they go to Pilate and they say, they listen, uh, he said that on the third day he would rise again. Therefore, we want you to give an order, issue this order uh, to secure the tomb, to guard the tomb until the third day because we're afraid that the disciples may come and steal the body of Jesus. Now, the religious leaders do this because they believe that Jesus is a fraud. They believe that he's an imposter. And you see, at first, they thought that all of their problems with Jesus were solved by crucifying him. But then they realized, we have a greater problem. Now, it's not an issue so much that they believe that he's going to rise again on the third day. They just want some insurance. They just want some insurance. And so Pilate, who by now is probably more than ready to extricate himself from this whole Jesus ordeal, he does two things. The first thing he does is he dispatches guards from his own army to go and guard the tomb. The second thing he does is he gives his seal. It's, it's, it's their version of that yellow, do not cross this line tape. And secures the tomb as, as evidence so that it becomes tamper-proof. Now, I find it really interesting, the solution and strategy of these religious leaders, because they're afraid of this potential outcome. So you notice what they do? The first thing they do is create a false narrative. They create their version of what is to happen. And then the second thing they do is they control that narrative through the use of cash and the use of force. Now, if you're looking back in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 28 and skip down to verse 11, this is the moment in the text where the guards come, they go from the tomb, they go back and they give their report as to what has happened. And look at this. This is really interesting. Uh, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest, look at that last line, all that had taken place. So the Roman soldiers tasked with this one assignment, this one job of, of guarding the tomb, they go back and, and they give their report, and, and this is what the report says. Um, so uh, listen, um, something weird happened at the tomb this morning. Uh, there was an earthquake, and there was this uh, heavenly angelic being, and, uh, and, 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 and we were scared. We were, we were terrified. We had been there all night long, and nothing had happened. And then this, this luminous being appeared and, and rolled the stone away. When we recovered our wits, there was no one in the tomb. The tomb was empty. The guards give factual and accurate testimony as to the reason for the empty tomb. So compelling 
and convincing is their testimony to the religious leaders. Look at what happens in verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They bribe them. They bribe them. Now, isn't this interesting? They paid Judas to betray Jesus, and they bribe the guards to lie to create a false narrative about Jesus. I love it how the Bible describes this. The Bible just says, how much money do you think is involved here? The Bible says, they gave them a sufficient amount, a sufficient amount. And they said, what we want you to say is this. Yeah, listen, um, we were at our post, and, and we were watching Netflix, and uh, we were catching up on Stranger Things, and the strangest thing happened. Uh, while we were binge-watching, we didn't notice, but the disciples came and stole the body. Now, that's a better story than what they were paid to say. Get this. Roman soldiers on guard duty are paid to say, we fell asleep. If you've ever served in the military, you understand the consequences of this. This is not just a, ah, no big deal, you know, try harder next time. And so the religious leaders, not only do they give them a sufficient amount of money, they say, listen, if it looks like you're going to get in trouble for this, we'll cover for you. We'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. So they had to go out and tell people because they'd received a sufficient amount of money that they fell asleep on guard duty. And while they were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. Now, one question I have of the guards is, if you were asleep, how did you know that this is what happened? It doesn't make sense, does it? So... The tainted testimony of the guards cannot be trusted. Uh, the words of the guards cannot be trusted because corrupt guards give corrupt testimony. So the first explanation, which seems like a possible explanation, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, well, in the light of the evidence, it's, it's not possible for it to happen. So that leaves us only with one other explanation. And the difficulty with this explanation is that it seems impossible. It seems impossible. The second and only other explanation is this, that Jesus rose from the dead just as he said. And I know this seems like an impossible uh, situation, but here's what I want to do. If you'll look in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 26, I just want to briefly follow the chain of evidence and see where it leads. Okay, so prior to his betrayal and arrest in Matthew chapter 26. If you look at verse 31, Jesus tells his disciples one more time. He tells them one more time what's going to happen. He says that the shepherd is going to be struck down and, and the sheep are going to scatter. But listen to what he says at the end of that. After I am raised up, meet me in Galilee. By the way, Galilee is where they're all from. Meet me in Galilee. Meet me back home. So that's where Jesus starts. And, and, and what we know from the text is that the, the shepherd was struck down and the sheep did scatter. But, but notice the last part again where Jesus says, after I am raised up, meet me in Galilee. Jesus says, yes, 
you're going to fail. You're going to fail so badly, you're going to flee. You're going to run away from me as if you never knew me a day in your life, but it's okay. I'll be waiting for you when you come back. Do you see how these words of Jesus are just, I mean, they're just infused with, with grace and goodness and forgiveness. The disciples didn't know it. Maybe they knew it in their hearts. We don't know. They didn't know that they were going to fall. Jesus knows, and he says, it's okay. It's okay. I'll be waiting for you back home. I'll be waiting for you back home. Now, this is the testimony of Jesus. This is the he said. I will rise again, and I will meet you back in Galilee. So if you go to Matthew 27 now, the, the resurrection story, in fact, the gospel story, it takes a turn. Uh, there's a shift in the narrative. And now suddenly what comes into the spotlight of the gospel text, not the disciples, the men who flee but the women who follow. And so in Matthew 27, you see that, and especially starting in verse 55, you see that Jesus is, is on the cross, he's dead, and, and there are some women looking on, and they are from Galilee. And the Bible says that they are at a distance watching what has happened. And as culture and, and circumstance mandated, these, these women are at a distance in this moment. But, but finally, in, in chapter 50, in verse 57, finally, a male follower of Jesus steps forward. But it's not someone that we would expect. It's not Peter, it's not James, it's not John, it's not any one of the other disciples. It's someone that we get to meet for the very first time, and his name is Joseph. Matthew identifies him as being from the town or the region of Arimathea. And Joseph is really a curious story. I mean, this is his moment in the life, in the story of Jesus. He has the courage, he has the conviction, and apparently he has the connections to have an audience with Pilate. I mean, it seems like every meeting that Pilate is taking these days has something to do with Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea has a meeting with Pilate, and he says, can I have the body of Jesus? Can I have the body of Jesus? And Pilate grants this request, and the body is taken off the cross. And the Bible tells us that Joseph wraps the body of Jesus in a clean linen cloth and puts him into Joseph's own tomb, a tomb that had never been used. You see these parallels? Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden, and Jesus is carried out and laid in a tomb outside of Jerusalem in a tomb that had never been used. But here's what I want you to notice. While all of this is happening, look at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite. I mean, everyone has fled, everyone has scattered, and, and these women, they've stayed. And they're still at a distance. They're opposite the tomb, and they're watching everything that has happened. They're watching the body being placed in the tomb. They're watching all of this happen. 
And then the gospel account tells us that they go home and they begin to prepare a mixture of spices and ointment. This is according to the burial custom of the day. And, and especially from Luke's gospel, we see that this, that was called the day of preparation. It takes on a whole new meaning. Because they're preparing to return and anoint the body of Jesus. But it's the Sabbath now. It's the second day and the women have to wait. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait for what must seem like an eternity. You know, the Bible says that with God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. This one day for these women must have felt like a thousand years. We've had a few days like that recently, haven't we? We've had a few moments like these women when all it seems that we can do is just wait and wait and wait. And on the third day, early in the morning, the women make their way to the tomb. They're bringing with them the spices and the ointments because they want to care properly for the body of Jesus. Notice that. They think that they're going to care for a dead body. And, and, and while they're on their way, the only hurdle in their path at this point is the stone that covers the entrance of the tomb is large. And there are guards there. And in fact, from Mark's gospel, we see that their conversation all the way from where they leave to where they're going is, how are we going to get that stone rolled away? How are we going to get that stone how are we going to move that so we can get in and, and care for the body of Jesus? So if you're back in Matthew 28, I absolutely love, 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 love the imagery of verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love this verse. This is one of my most favorite verses in the entire Bible. See, I, I kind of visualize it as angel boot camp, right? I mean, it's preseason. They're getting ready, and, and all the angels are out there, you know, getting in shape. You know, they're working on their drills, and, and you can hear, you know, the angel coach telling all the other angels, push the stone, push the stone, push the stone, you know. You can see all this going on, and, and then this day comes, and they're all gathered around, and they're just waiting to see who's going to be called, and they're all, you know, they're all on the sidelines. You know, you've seen this before. You know, come on, put me in, coach. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go, coach. And I love this moment in my mind, scary place. Where God says, all right, dash, roll away the stone. That the fact that the angel is called to do this, this career-defining moment for an angel, and this angel moves so fast, he causes an earthquake. Causes an earthquake. And there, can you see it? The angel rolls the stone away and is sitting there on that stone. You want me on this stone. You need me on this stone. I mean, what a great image this is. And then notice the first words that the angel says, not to the guards at the tomb, but to the women in verse 5. The first words out of the angel's mouths are these, do not be afraid. This is pretty much the first thing an angel says every time they come and talk to somebody. 
do not be afraid. I mean, the, the luminous appearance and all of this, and, 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 and so what the, what the angels go on to say is, is, is wonderful. I know that you seek Jesus, the one who was crucified. Now look at this next part. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now, when you consider the testimony of the angel, he said, I know what you're looking for, but what you're looking for is not here. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Now, now I want you to look at this evidence here. The angel tells the women, come closer. You see, the narrative has been showing us that these women have been at a distance for so long. They've been at a distance at a distance, at a distance, and now the angel says, come closer, come closer, come all the way inside this tomb and take a look at where he was laying. The angel, the angel comes and he says to them, the tomb is empty. Now, I want you to notice what I think is a really important detail. The stone is not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone is rolled away to let the women in, to let them see. And this is one of the most remarkable things. Now, the fact that the tomb is empty, that's not proof of resurrection. It's not. It's just evidence that the tomb is empty. The proof of resurrection happens in verse 9 when on their way to do what the angel said they should do. You see this, and behold, Jesus met them and said, don't you think those are strange words i mean what a strange way that those are your first words if you look back at the original meaning of this word it's a word that's rooted in grace and goodness i think even eugene peterson translates this as good morning good morning but it has the idea of rejoice in this word so jesus is coming to them and saying rejoice Greetings, good news, and that's proof of the resurrection. Now, as I said, I, I absolutely love this text. If it was possible, I would put all kinds of heart and thumbs up emojis in my Bible. Just because of how great I think this verse is. So, do you see how our story has come full circle this morning? Uh, we started with Jesus telling his disciples, After I'm raised from the dead, I will meet you in Galilee. And now with Jesus raised from the dead, he tells the women, all right, go round up the scattered sheep. Go round them up and tell them that I have risen from the dead and to meet me in Galilee. Do you notice this? That the women are the first ones to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the women who are the first ones to give testimony, partly because they're the only ones there. The other disciples aren't anywhere around, but they are. And this, strangely enough, is one way you can know that this story is true. You see, in this day, in this culture, the testimony of a woman was inadmissible in court. They were not allowed to be witnesses in this day and time. A, a woman could not be a witness 
in a legal proceeding. So if the followers of Jesus wanted to fabricate and make up a resurrection story, women would not have been the first ones. They would not have been the first ones to witness and bear witness to the resurrected Lord. And because the story unfolds in this way, that's just one small evidence that the story is true. That on the third day, the tomb was empty. Matthew shows us two reasons. One reason that seemed possible, well, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus by night. It's impossible. And the one reason that looked impossible actually turns out to be more than just possible. It turns out to be true. You know, in the resurrection story of Jesus, you can be any one of these followers. You can. Uh, You can deny Jesus, and you can be welcomed back. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to not have it all figured out. You can run from him. You can flee from him, and and you can return to him, and, and he'll welcome you back. You see, you can follow faithfully without fully understand what this great mystery of faith is all about. You can follow and have doubts. You can follow and make mistakes. You can follow and and deny in key moments of your life. You can do all of this because grace brings us back to Him, to a resurrected Lord who is saying, I'll be here when you get back. Not only that, if you need me to, I'll chase you down. I'll chase you down. You think the angels movement caused seismic activity just Cry out to me, and I will move heaven and earth to get to you. You see, the gospel-shaped life has nothing to do with living perfectly. Nothing to do. The gospel-shaped life doesn't say, well, you can't doubt, and you can't make mistakes, and you you can't deny. The the gospel-shaped life has everything to do with accepting the perfect life of Jesus as a substitute for your life. In other words, His faith. His life, His death, and His resurrection for you. The empty tomb invites all of us to take one step further, to look inside, to come and see that our heart's testimony may be, He is risen, just as He said. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you roll away whatever stone whatever obstacle is in the way for anyone here this morning to encounter you as the risen Lord. Holy Spirit, would you breathe into our lives the power of the gospel. And Jesus, would you meet us in our journey of fear and give us faith. We pray through the power of God who brings the dead to life. Jesus, our Savior. Amen.